Well, today's reading is from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, happy Easter to everyone. Uh, The building is empty, but so is the tomb. And so we are in good company this Easter morning. Now, I want to start out with a question. It is a question that is for everyone, so get ready to answer it in in the comments, Uh, because, you know, this is, we we, we want to do everything we can as a church to, even though we're streaming, have this not just be about sort of passively receiving something. And, And indeed, tuning in and listening, that is an active thing. I don't want to denigrate that at all. But I also want to give people an opportunity for engagement, since we're missing, missing that with each other um, uh, during, uh, during this season. And so this question is for everyone. Think about it. You know, I'm going to tell a couple stories. You can think about it during this. But what is, is the most valuable or most important thing that you've ever lost? And so please feel free to share that uh, in the comments uh, as, as, as I'm telling these couple stories. And so when I was thinking of this question and, and, and I was engaging in this, uh, you know, thought experiment, a couple of stories came to my mind about valuable things that I have lost in my own life. The first thing that we lost was Amy's engagement ring. Now, this was, of course, after we're married, but I call the engagement ring because, you know, that's the thing with the rock on it. And, and it happened about six years ago because, if I recall correctly, my son, my oldest son, Kyle, was two years old at the time. Now, sometimes, you know, like many of us, we can relate to this now when we're washing our hands uh, compulsively, you know, uh, dozens of times a day, you you get irritated where your ring is and you want to take it off so that you can moisturize properly uh, to heal some of the damage that's being done to your skin. And so this has happened to Amy over over the years. And so, you know, sometimes she would get a little bit of uh, rash on her fingers. So she would take it off to moisturize and, you know, leave it sitting on the the nightstand at night so she could heal overnight. Well, um, Anyways, you know, so she would, she would put her ring on, on the nightstand at night, um, you know, the engagement ring, the one with the decent size diamond on it. It's a carrot, if you round up. And uh, the one that cost me actually way more, they say, what, it's supposed to cost you three months salary? Okay, this thing cost me like way more than three months salary because at the time I bought it, my monthly salary was zero dollars. And so this was like infinitely more expensive. This was infinity month salary at that point in time when I had bought it. And so Amy would, you know, leave the moisturize overnight and, and leave the ring on her, uh, on, on her nightstand. And then one day, it was no longer there. What happened to that ring? Now, we, we had a, a sneaking suspicion that our toddler maybe had something to do with it. And so we asked him, hey, do you know where mommy's ring is? 
And he seemed to have an idea that he had had something to do with this ring going missing. But no matter how much we begged, no matter how much we bribed, no matter how much we cajoled him and threatened him, he could not tell us for the life of him where this ring was. Now, we were like the woman in the, in the parable about the pearl of great price. I mean, we turned our house upside and down. I looked in every single crack and crevice, every single nook and cranny. And alas, that ring was nowhere to be found. Nada. You know, uh, after searching everywhere, I gave up hope. You know, you first to think, well, it'll turn up. But after a while of searching, I gave up hope. And I started looking on the internet and, and convincing myself that, you know, cubic zirconia, it's even better than the real thing. And, you know, true, conf- true confessions time, I think it probably, it probably is. But, uh, you know, I had given up and, and months passed when all of a sudden, one day, I just so happened to be looking through one of our, our, our toy drawers. And in the very back of it, there was something sparkly. And I found it. Amy's engagement ring. Kyle had taken it and hidden it in that drawer. I couldn't believe that that little bugger had done it. And then I could blame him for that, so he lost it. But then there was a time where I have only myself to blame, where I lost the, probably this was the most um, distraught I had ever been about losing something in my life. So uh, the year was 2006, ought six, as we called it back then. And uh, uh, Amy and I were pre- preparing to move to lovely New Jersey uh, so I could attend seminary. And, um, you know, Amy amazingly had secured a job, a teaching job, um, in, in bucolic Robbinsville Township uh, in Robbinsville, New Jersey, just, just a few minutes drive away from Princeton. And so part of securing this job, it was contingent upon her receiving a New Jersey teacher's license. Now, we thought this would be a simple process because Amy had her Minnesota teacher's license. And, you know, we as Minnesotans, we pride ourselves on the quality of our public education. But when Amy called to talk about transferring or getting a New Jersey teacher's license, they sort of assumed that we were still teaching out of one-room schoolhouses here in, in, in Minnesota. You know, that, uh, that, we, that we weren't quite as uh, sophisticated and advanced as they were in New Jersey. But finally, 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 she was able to get all everything figured out. And so we were submitting our paperwork to uh, Trenton to get uh, it processed so she could get her New Jersey teacher's license. Now, once we submitted it, there was this online portal where we could track it and we could just see day after day processing, processing, processing. And this was a very stressful time because our date of moving was approaching. And to add insult to injury at this time, there was record flooding in Trenton. And so they closed the government down. And so we had to wait and wait and wait until one day, finally, that precious envelope arrived with Amy's New New Jersey teacher's license in it. And I was like Gollum with the ring. I mean, this was my precious because this meant we could move forward with our future. And and, and a couple weeks later, you know, we were going on vacation and I was terrified that someone was going to break into our house and they were going to steal that New Jersey teacher's license because do you know what that can fetch on the street? I mean, my gosh, that is more valuable than any drug you can sell a New Jersey teacher's license. And so I hid it. I put it in a place where no one would find it, including apparently myself. Uh, Because when we got back from vacation, I could not for the life of me remember where I had put that piece of paper. 
And as the days went by and I couldn't find it everywhere and I looked through that same stack of papers next to my bed for the umpteenth time, I could see uh, my future crumbling before me. Amy's job, gone. Seminary, gone. My future, lost. But then one day as we were packing up our books, I, I noticed that there was an odd bookmark in one of my books. Uh, and there was that precious piece of blue paper tucked in there just so. <laughs> I could not believe how rejoice, how glad I was. I had found it. I found that license. We could move forward. And the rest is history. Now, I think of those two examples, and those are stories where something was lost, but it had a happy ending because eventually we found it and, 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 and hope was restored. Life was restored. But I still remember those, those feelings of panic and, and resigned dejection and frantic searching as I grasp, grappled with the prospect of their permanent loss. Now, imagine, you know, the most precious thing that you, you probably called to your mind that you've ever lost, and maybe you've never found it, and then raise that by an, an almost infinite amount when you consider our passage this morning. Because it reflects, on, we're going to reflect on the most important thing that has ever been lost by anyone, and I am referring here to the ending of the Gospel of Mark, the original ending of the Gospel of Mark. Now, doesn't, doesn't it strike you as strange how the story here just ends so abruptly with the women leaving the tomb afraid and saying nothing. There has to be more to the story. And don't think that I'm doing some kind of special pleading and saying, well, because I believe there has to be more to the story, there just has to be more to the story. No, 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 no. In the language of the text itself, it suggests that there is more to this story because the passage ends in this odd way. It ends with, a, in the Greek, a conjunction of explanation. So the last word of this is because of or for. It means that there's a further explanation coming. And while it's not impossible that a, that a, that a passage, a, a writing could end this way, it's, it's improbable. And it's highly suggestive that there is more that Mark wants to say. It seems like he wants to say they were afraid because of. They were afraid for. And then he's going to tell us why. And he's going to go on to finish his gospel just like the other three do with tales of Jesus's appearance to his disciples and his eventual ascension to the right hand of the Father. But something happened to Mark's ending. Now, God only knows the, the most likely scenario is that the oldest manuscripts were, were mutilated, meaning that, that, that the parchment broke off somewhere early in, in its transmission. And, and so, poof. It was gone. And we go, well, how could they do that? We need to keep in mind that until the 19th century, uh, the gospel of Mark in, 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 in kind of the, the esteem of the church, it was kind of the redheaded stepchild of the gospels. It, it was the Ringo of the gospels, if you will. Um, you know, uh, Luke was far more artful, uh, Matthew more theological, John more philosophical, and then there was Mark. Plain, straightforward, simple, you know, kind of country, straight, no chaser. And so the church quickly came to prefer, especially Matthew and, and even Luke, because they had all the good parts of Mark and they were written with more sophistication and style. Mark stayed in the canon, but he was ignored. And so we can perhaps understand that somehow 
its manuscripts weren't treated with quite the same care, and that one day, oops, its ending was just lost. See, the, the early scribes, they didn't realize that Mark was the, the first gospel. It had primacy of place in terms of when it was written. And so the historical witness to the events of Jesus' life, you know, they, they didn't realize that this was the first one that we had. And if they knew that, I'm sure they would have been more careful. And if anyone ever finds Mark's lost ending, it, it will be the greatest discovery. This is no hyperbole ever. I mean, right up there with discovering, you know, uh, the, the, the pyramids and Tutankhamun's tomb and, uh, you know, that that diamond necklace that sunk with the Titanic. I mean, this will be up there with the greatest discoveries in the history of the world. But alas, we only have Mark up to verse 8. But let us not despair, and instead, let us make a virtue of necessity. Because even though we have an incomplete ending, that incomplete ending, it leaves us with a powerful challenge. But first, I, I, I want to slow down and I want to look at the details of, of these first eight verses and see what they have to teach us about, about faithfulness and about fortitude and about fear, especially as it concerns these women. So first, their faithfulness. These three women were there when Jesus was crucified. Mark tells us at the end of chapter 15 that these women saw Jesus be crucified. They saw him be buried. And these same women were part of a cadre who had, who had followed Jesus in Galilee and, and had ministered to him and supported his ministry and been his disciples. Now, given the equal status of, of women and men in our society, especially, you know, we know things are not perfect, but I mean, when we compare it to antiquity uh, and more traditional societies, uh, you know, the, the, our imperfections uh, seem much less than, that, than those. And so it's impossible, really, given that we've been shaped by this world, this view where men and women are equal, uh, that it, it, it's almost impossible for us to understand how revolutionary it was that Jesus had uh, female disciples. That was simply unheard of. It, it, it was scandalous. But wherever Christianity has spread in the world, it has elevated the status of women. That is an incontrovertible historical fact. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, fourth wave feminism has broken out, uh, you know, in, in, in medieval Europe. But it does mean that wherever Christianity has gone, the status of women has been elevated. So if anyone ever wonders what difference has Easter made, that's one very practical and tangible difference it has made. Be, be, because, uh, you know, there is a, a radical equality contained within the message of Jesus. That women and men are, are given the honor of following and ministering to Jesus equally. That, that God calls both women and men equally to, to be his disciples. That, that, that all of us have this expectation that we can sit at his feet and learn from him and imitate him. And live lives of faithful discipleship. Christianity is not and never has been a boys' club. So that's a difference that Easter has made. And, you know, what, what a marvelous fact that, that Jesus not only chose these women to follow him and to minister to him, but that God also gave them a place of honor in terms of being the first witnesses to his resurrection, to the empty tomb. That these three women in, in Mark's gospel, they got to be the first people to see the most important event in history, the most important sight in history. These women were faithful. 
Whereas the, the disciples, they had betrayed Jesus. They had abandoned him. They had fled from him. They had denied him. These women had remained to the end. They could answer yes to the questions posed by that old spiritual. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Yes. Yes, they were. And they didn't leave him there, but they came back after the Sabbath to do what they could, to do what Jesus deserved, to anoint his body with oil and, and, and to cover it in spices, to give him their, his proper burial. This was to be their last act of love for their teacher. Now notice what these women didn't expect. They didn't go there expecting to see some kind of, you know, resurrection. They didn't expect Easter to happen for them like us. It it came out of nowhere. Now, of course, they believed in the resurrection of the dead. Any good, pious Jew in those days did. But the resurrection was not something that happened to one person in the middle of history. No, 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 no. Resurrection was something that would happen to everyone at the end of history. So Easter came out of nowhere. And we know that they didn't expect the resurrection because they came prepared for a dead body. And the question at the front of their minds wasn't, you know, what will we find when they get there? They knew what they would find. Their question was, who will roll the stone away? That's an important question because the the, the stones, the circular stones that were rolled in front of the entrances to tombs were heavy heavy stones. It would require, you know, several able-bodied men to roll it aside. Now, they might have hoped that Peter, James, John, really any of the disciples would have joined them and rolled the stone away for them, but the men folk were too scared. So they stayed behind, and the women went forward without help. They were faithful. They did what they could. They brought what they had. And they trusted God to provide the rest, to provide for them when they got there. And that's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful lesson in faithfulness. That we are called as Jesus' followers to simply do what we can, to, to only bring what we have. And trust that when we're faithful, God's faithfulness will exceed and surpass our own. You know, sometimes there's those little sayings that they rhyme and we think that they're trite, but there's truth in them. They're cliches. You know, let go and let God is one of them. But this morning we see with these women, do your best and let God provide the rest. So that's the faithfulness of the women. But then there's their fortitude, their courage. Look at their tremendous courage. When they got to the tomb and they saw that the stone had been rolled away, they go inside. That took guts. That took courage. Because there was no one and, uh, there who would have rolled the stone away. And there's no way that that stone had been, should have been rolled away. And, and so there was no telling what was inside. No telling what might have happened to the body of their Lord. To them, it, it must have looked something like this. Um, uh, oh, but yet not like that, uh, would not have looked anything like that. <laughs> uh, to them, it must have looked something like this. Would you go inside of there? Uh, uh, no way. 
If I saw something like that, I would run in the other direction. I would have gone and gotten help. I would, would not have been willing to go and see if my worst nightmares had come true, if my greatest fears had been confirmed. Either that his remains had been desecrated or, or, or even worse, that his body had been stolen. But these women were not afraid. They were brave. They walked into the unknown and uncertain because of their love for Jesus. And so let that be another lesson for us this morning. That, that when we follow Jesus, that is going to take us in places where, where there is uncertainty, where we are uncomfortable, where we can't be assured of the outcome or what we will find or what will happen. But we go to those places because of our love for him. Even if in those places, you know, we have to kind of keep our eyes almost completely shut and, or look through our fingers. But we go there because we love him. Now, lastly, there is their fear. So they do the brave thing. They enter the tomb. And to their surprise, there's a young man there dressed in a white robe. Mark is very sparing in his description. This is no obvious, you know, glorious, angelic being with a robe like lightning, you know, whose appearance makes them sort of step back. It's just a young dude in a white robe. How very strange, how very unsettling. And I'm sure as soon as they saw him, you, you know, the questions would have been rushing through their mind as fast as their hearts were beating. Who is he? What is he doing here? How did he get here? But before they can even blurt anything out, he says to them, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. These, meant, these words were meant to assure the women. They, they weren't looking in the wrong place. They hadn't gotten the wrong address. Jesus hadn't just, you know, swooned and kind of woken up and pushed it out of the waves himself. No, 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 no. The one who was crucified, he's the same one who has been raised. Has been raised. That, that's, a, that's a wonderful use of the passive voice. You know, we, we usually use the passive voice to elide responsibility. The most famous example being, of course, mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. That, that's how we usually use the passive voice. But this is a divine passive. He has been raised. It speaks to the powerful, the, the, the power of God to even conquer death. And so what's, what's so marvelous and, and mysterious about the resurrection is that in all of the gospel accounts, there is no attempt to describe, to narrate the resurrection itself. They, they don't try to explain the unexplainable. They don't try to describe the indescribable. No, the empty tomb Easter morning is all the evidence we're given. It's all the evidence that they got. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth describes the empty tomb like a, a bomb crater. The resurrection itself, it's the explosion. But all we get to see is the crater. And just as the bomb crater uh, itself points away from itself to the explosion that caused it, so too the empty tomb points away from itself toward the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one. Now the young man dressed in white gives them this message and, and then these instructions. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee and you will see him just as he told you. Simple enough. Go, tell the disciples, tell Peter, tell him Jesus has gone to Galilee. He's going to meet you there. 
So even though these, this is a startling encounter, it's not like they have to do something very complicated. They just have to go tell some people where Jesus is going to be. Simple. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy, as we say in our house. But Mark ends with these words. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they went and told Peter and the disciples, and they went out to Galilee, and Jesus met them there, right? Happy ending. I love it. No. Mark leaves us hanging. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Not exactly a happy ending. They told no one why. Well, we at least know why, because they were afraid. They were afraid. And so here we must deal with their fear. Why were they afraid? Was it because they were women, and, and, and as so they were not considered suitable to be, to be witnesses in any kind of legal proceeding? You know, first century Palestine had the same sexist tropes that we had even in our modern world, that, that women were hysterical and emotional and therefore they couldn't be trusted. You know, they would just give into tall tales. Was it because they didn't think the disciples would believe them? I mean, would they have believed them? Were they afraid of being mocked and ridiculed for their, their message? I mean, this is just too good to be true. This is some kind of delusion or fairy tale. Or were they afraid because they couldn't quite bring themselves to believe it? We don't know. But nevertheless, here is where we get the opportunity to make virtue out of necessity. Because our passage, it ends with verse and while the original ending of Mark might be lost, the ending to Mark's story is not. And so the question that is left hanging is, who will go and tell others? Who will share the good news that Jesus Christ is not dead, but he has been risen, risen indeed? Who will share the good news that the strife is o'er, the battle's done, the victory of life is won? Who will share that news? Because the story that seems to end with the fear of the women, it doesn't end there. We're all living proof of that. But no matter what our fears or our reservations, we have a story to tell. A story that love is stronger than death. That, that hope is stronger than despair. Jesus is risen, and because of that, we know that all things will be made new. And so we can follow the way of Jesus, and we can live kingdom lives, and we know that they're not dead-ended, but they lead us to eternal life. And the road that he invites us to walk, it leads us not to death, but life everlasting. And it's the only road that does. There's nothing embarrassing, unbelievable, or stupid about that. And so even though believing that and living that and sharing that is scary, we have no excuse. We have news to share. We have a story to tell. And so we have a chance to testify and share with the world what Easter means, which is, is something that a bunch of you from our congregation did just this past week. And so we get to complete and hear how our own brothers and sisters complete Mark's story right now. Um, hi. You want to go? Hey. 
Hi. Hi, church family. Hi. Hey, Resurrection family. Hey. Hi, everyone. Hi, Res family. Um, thinking about Easter this year is definitely different than it's ever been for a lot of reasons. With the coronavirus, um, it's a season apart. I'm not going to live church. The fact that I can't spend time with my family, uh, with my friends uh, at church, enjoying what that all brings. I'm tired of looking at people on computer screens. Especially now, as we need his strength, and we need wisdom, and we need his um, comfort. I feel much more Good Friday than Easter Sunday, and... Um, it's only been a few weeks, and I'm already kind of really over it. A uh, reminder of how um, fragile life is, how little we have in our control. So in light of everything that's happened, I think I've been surprised how much more Easter means to me this year. It's easy for us to dwell on the ways that our day-to-day -day has changed, but we're trying to shift our focus to one of hopefulness and gratitude. And so in my walks recently, I have seen the, the signs of spring. The if-onlys, the ought-to-have-beens are all replaced by he is. Things like Good Friday was not the end. Um, Easter is a time of new beginnings and triumph and new life. That ultimately uh, the good in the world and God's kingdom has ultimately defeated any of the bad and the kingdom of the world. Easter reminds me that it's a time for hoping, it's a time for being excited. This is a temporary thing. To me, Easter means that there's a much bigger story that we are a part of. And the ending of this story won't be determined by viruses or economies, but by Jesus' death and resurrection. And that gives us the hope that, as Paul writes, uh, one day all will be made alive. And as Jesus promises in Revelation, he is making everything new. Uh, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Where, O oh, grave, is your victory, where, O oh, death, is your sting. The resurrection of Christ means that even though the world may be in turmoil, or even my life, I know I can trust in the Lord. Easter means victory over death. Easter is hope. Easter always meant family. Sacrificial love. Hope. Eternal life. Easter is thankfulness. I think Easter is about love. So that sacrifice of Christ and that community that we're part of is what stands out to me. Jesus is alive! Easter to me means that there is hope and promise for the future. He has risen! And we can have close communion and friendship with our Lord, and what a precious thing that is. Hallelujah. Amen! I praise God for the resurrection, for his grace. And just enjoy it, have a break. I have hope. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Wish you all a wonderful Easter. Happy Easter, everyone. Happy Easter. Happy Easter, everybody. And uh, we'll be back together soon. Thank you.